Well, friends, if you ever, um, and I know that some of you do, check out my Facebook page, uh, I post about two things 99% of the time. Those two things are the Baltimore Orioles and this church. And um, recently, something interesting happened when I put up a post about the Baltimore Orioles. Pastor friend across town who has just just moved here from, from the West Coast, he ended up at a spring training game, same one that I was at, Orioles uh, versus, versus Pittsburgh, and um, noticed that, that when Orioles fans sing the national anthem, we accentuate the O part of it, and he was distraught, he thought that was just the most disrespectful thing that had ever happened, and he says to me, he's like, why do you do that? Why do you guys do that? And I grew up in Baltimore. I, that's all I've known for the vast majority of my life. So I don't really have an explanation as to the history behind that. But what it made me think about is sometimes there's things that, that we just do that, that come naturally to us, but we have no idea why it is that, that we're doing them. One of those things in the life of the church is, is this event called Pentecost. And, and Pentecost is is such a strange occurrence because it happens, especially here in Florida, chronologically on the calendar, it happens right at the start of summer. And that's when a lot of people start checking out, and, and it doesn't have the same focus and attention that Easter or Christmas has, but yet it's just as important as Easter and Christmas. So what we're going to do the next couple of weeks is we're going to talk about Pentecost because this year I want to make sure that we're ready for it, that we know what's going on and why it happens when it happens. So we're going to do that through the lens of Acts 2. Let me pray for us and we will study the word together. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. So when you're going to make brownies, you look at the back of the box and you start off with two eggs and and a tablespoon of vegetable oil and the brownie mix. And then you look at the picture and then you have brownies. And that's kind of how it works. These three ingredients and all of a sudden it's, it's brownies. If you follow exactly by the pictures, then you're going to be sadly mistaken when you discover that there's actually some work that goes in between those three items and then the final pan of brownies. At the end of May, Christians all over the world are going to celebrate Pentecost. And in its most basic, its most basic definition, Pentecost is the day that the followers of Christ received the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's called the birthday of the church. If you think back to the church's last major holiday, you remember that it was Easter. And on Easter, Jesus rose from the dead. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit arrived. You start off with two eggs, a tablespoon of vegetable oil, and some mix, and then all of a sudden, there's brownies. Something had to happen to get us from point A, the day of the resurrection, to point B, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. As a general rule, as a general rule, a couple usually gets eight or nine months warning from that moment that they find out they're expecting Till when they actually become parents. And in between, there is some labor involved, which is exactly what happened after Jesus rose from the tomb. Now, Jesus rising from the tomb, that was really big news. It's news worth sharing. It's news that to this day is worth sharing. Then Jesus appears to his disciples, not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. 
The reason for this is so that we would have enough people that had an eyewitness, an eyewitness to the actual resurrection. So it's not just the fluke that Jesus showed up one time after the tomb was empty. He did it again and again and again so that people would know for sure that his promise of the resurrection had come true. What usually happens at that point in the church year is the pastors stop talking about Jesus. We wait until Advent comes around to bring him up again. We go on and we talk about other stuff. And then there's this one day that comes along and all of a sudden the pastor shows up wearing red and it's Pentecost. And we just expect that everybody knows what happened in between. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. The they that's mentioned in scripture would have been the disciples. It would have been the women who were at the tomb. And it would have been Jesus's family. And the reason that they're all together in one place is because Jesus gave them a very strict instruction. He said, wait. Wait. In Acts 1-4, Jesus, while he was still with them, said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised you, which you heard me speak about. Jesus told them. He said, look, when I leave, you are going to receive the Holy Spirit. It's coming. Wait for it. Ultimately, that Jesus would have to go back to heaven. The believers then would need a comforter, the Holy, the Holy Spirit of God to surround them and encourage them and lead them forward until Jesus returned again. So they were told, wait. And then Jesus speaks to them one last time. This is Acts 1.8. And Jesus tells them, here's the plan. This is, this is the plan for what happens after the Holy Spirit gets here. You... You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promised the people that in a little while, God would supply the church with all of the resources that we were going to need to, f- to fulfill our missionary mandate. And our missionary mandate would go like this. You, you are going to be my witnesses to Bradenton. And then from Bradenton to Manatee County, and from Manatee County to Florida, and from Florida to the United States, and from the United States to the world. That's your mission mandate. But you got to wait for it. Now, it's one thing to wait for a few minutes. Most of us can kind of sort of do that. But how about a few days? Or, or a few weeks? Or, or maybe even wait for a month or two? Have you ever seen those surveillance videos that they put in when somebody doesn't know that they're there to see what they do while they're waiting for somebody to come in? Or you ever go to the doctor's office, right? And the nurse walks out. She says, the doctor will be with you in a few minutes. How long can you go before you want to start checking your chart and seeing what they have written about you? Most people can't make it any more than two or three minutes without doing something while they're waiting. The followers of Jesus were no different. They couldn't just sit there and wait. So what they did while they were waiting is necessary for us to know so that we can get ourselves ready for Pentecost. We have a map of how to prepare our hearts and our lives for Pentecost. The first thing that they did was pray, which I think is really interesting because nowhere, nowhere in Jesus' commandments to them in the book of Acts does he say, wait and pray. This means that they came to this on their own. And the reason that they came to it on their own is because they had seen Jesus' example. Jesus' example in his own baptism, Jesus' example in his teaching, especially in regards to how the Spirit would come 
in response to prayer. And that gave, the, that gave those early followers the guidance that they needed to pray and to pray persistently. So as we get ready for Pentecost this year, and if we are truly expecting a fresh outpouring of the Spirit, one of the first things that we have to do individually and together is pray. We need to be united in persistent prayer the way that the first followers were. The second thing that they did was that they chose a replacement for Judas. Judas, if you will remember, is the one who sold out Jesus to the authorities and who ultimately ended his life in shame. Now here's why this is such a really, really big deal in the early church. According to the scriptures, it wasn't like they could just go out and grab any random person to be one of the new apostles. They had to find somebody who was an eyewitness to the whole course of Jesus' ministry, which means that this person had to see Jesus in action before his death, had to be there for his death, had to have seen the resurrection and the ascension. And the reason that's important is that it emphasizes the eyewitness testimony, which would become the church's, the church's foundation. So in other words, the goal, the goal then was to restore the integrity among the church's leaders. Integrity of, of leadership, and then also in the people of the church itself, even to this very day, is dependent upon having a group of people who have a deep and personal relationship with Christ. That was the foundation of the early church, and it is the foundation for the integrity of the church today. So what that means for us in preparation for Pentecost, which is the day where we're going to celebrate the, the new spirit of life and the, of the life of the church, is that the restoration of integrity within the body of Christ needs to be essential in preparation for revival. And what that means for you and me individually is that we have a responsibility in these coming weeks to think about our relationships with others. Is there a relationship that maybe is not as right as it should be? Is there a relationship with God that is not as right as it could be? We need to get those things right so that we can fully experience the renewal that comes from the Holy Spirit. The apostles chose Matthias, and in choosing him, the ranks of their leadership then were restored to full strength and integrity. So the people prayed, they confessed their sins, they restored the integrity of their leadership, they prepared themselves for a new thing, a new breath of God which is going to blow through them. Verse 2, And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house they were sitting in. This whole story, this whole story goes from zero to 60 really, really fast. It's kind of like in, in labor and delivery when you spend months getting ready and then the contractions start and then you spend a little bit of time in holding and then suddenly everybody gets excited really, really fast and the next thing you know, there's a baby. This was not a small rush of wind. This isn't a nice, gentle breeze that goes by. This was so loud and so moving that it brought people who were outside of the house it, running out into the streets to see what was happening. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each one of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. That's important to know. That's an important fact that's included here. 
And at this sound, the crowd gathered, and they were bewildered because each one of them heard speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our native language? And then there's that whole list that James did so well that I don't have to repeat for you. (laughs) And the amazing thing was that each one of them could hear God's deeds of power. All of them were amazed, but yet also perplexed about this, saying, what does this mean? What is going on in this situation? At its most basic level, what this means is that God is for everyone. That Jesus is accessible to everyone. That no one, regardless of their race or nationality or language, is ever excluded from the love and grace of God. And then remember that Jesus told his followers that that they were to go all over the world and they were to give witness to him. And then remember that he promised them that the Holy Spirit would come and equip them so they could do that kind of work. Well, that's what happened here. Suddenly, the people could talk to each other and they could understand each other. And that small ragtag group of followers who had prayed and who had restored the integrity of their group, they now had the ability. They had this ability to go out into the world, the whole world, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ's salvation. In Pentecost, God speaks everybody's language. Nobody's left out. So what of Pentecost then should the church expect today in in 2015? Should we be on the lookout that come the end of May, this place is going to be filled with tongues of fire and hurricane-strength winds? What is repeatable and, and, and what is unrepeatable? Those aspects of Pentecost that that marked its inauguration, that first experience of Pentecost, they fulfilled the God's purpose of of what he wanted to do at that moment. So we should not necessarily expect that at the end of May we're going to have that same experience. But in any age, in any age, we should expect, and you, you should expect to find a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit powerfully enabled to bear witness to Christ and to the gospel. What this means for us, family, is that we constantly, we constantly need to be preparing to receive fresh winds of the Spirit. And that doesn't mean that we need to be preparing to do changes around the church, right? I I love when somebody says, well, you know, Pastor Hope, the Spirit told me that, that we should paint the church bright orange, right? Don't confuse that. Don't don't confuse what God's doing there. The Spirit leads us in proclaiming the good news. There's nothing about an orange church that is necessarily going to proclaim the good news if the people inside of the orange church aren't filled with the Spirit. Now, we can do all of these things. We can pray. We can restore our integrity. We can prepare our hearts for the coming of the Spirit. But eventually... Eventually, somebody's going to have some criticism about this. They're going to make fun of us. They're going to doubt our experience, which is exactly what happened in the early church. Verse 13, others sneered. They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed him. You've got to love Peter. You have to love Peter, because usually when he's the first one to speak, he gets himself into trouble. In this case, Peter's the first one to speak. 
and he's got a good word, and he's going to explain to all these people who, who are making fun of the followers what's going on. He says, men of Judea, all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what is spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it will be, God declares, that I will pour my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall see dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is awesome. He comes at this so simply. It may appear, it may appear to everybody that all these people are drunk. Peter's first point is, wait for the outcome. Wait for the outcome. Because though it may look like it's the same thing, what happens at the end is going to be totally different. There's a huge difference between being filled with the Spirit and having a drunken hangover. Peter skillfully then explains how this Spirit got poured out on everyone without regard to gender or or social status or, or ethnic origin. That means it was poured out on kids. How many three- and four-year-olds do you know that spend a lot of time drinking alcohol? Doesn't happen. It was poured out at nine o'clock in the morning. You would have to have started drinking really, really, really early to be wasted by 9 a.m. This is not about alcohol. This is about the life-changing movement of the Holy Spirit of the living God. That's how much joy was involved. That's how much emotion was involved. That's how much excitement was involved when that wind came rushing through. What that means for us today, though, is that we're living in time, a time of rapid social change. We've got moral decay and environmental crisis and and just seemingly unmanageable economic and, and political problems. We can identify with the apostles and the prophets' sense of the end. That's what they thought was happening, right? They thought that this was the end. There was so much going on, and it was so crazy, and it was so wild that this has to be the end. Well, we can be comforted in knowing that history is not out of control, that God is constantly at work. That's what was happening. God was at work. And we do, we do live in a time of the Spirit's life-giving presence. But here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Will we call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? That's going to be the next part of the Pentecost story. Let me pray for us. Holy God, we acknowledge that we don't always know a lot about the Spirit, that it tends to be something that we overlook, and yet it's the Spirit that is with us on that daily basis, reminding us of your presence, your work in the world. It is the Spirit that guides us, that leads us, that reminds us of the work that is left to be done before your return. It is the Spirit that comforts us in times of trial, And it is the Spirit that breaks our hearts when we see the cities around us burning. Lord, be with us to the end. Rest your Spirit upon our shoulders and give us grace. In your name we pray. Amen.